Hello, and welcome to History West Midlands, our regular in-depth examination of various aspects of the Black Country. What links the panes of the Crystal Palace, the windows of the White House in the USA, and the lenses of virtually every lighthouse around the globe? The answer lies on the Black Country Birmingham borders in Smethwick, and the rear of the programme for the 150th anniversary of glassmaking in Smethwick tells us... It was on May the 18th, 1824, that Robert Lucas Chance purchased the works of the British Crown Glass Company. From these beginnings, the internationally known Glass Company of Chance Brothers has developed. The Chance family left their farming roots in Bromsgrove to establish a glass business, which went on to be cited by George Kohlmeyer in his work Houses of Glass as the greatest glass manufacturer in Britain. Chance's became a key player in global glassmaking, especially in their development of optics for lighthouses. Their Fresnel lenses revolutionised maritime safety, elevating lighthouses from relatively simple beacons to the realms of high technology. But as the company grew, it also diversified and prided itself on its innovation and high skill levels. It even attracted comment from Elihu Burritt, the 19th century observer who remarked, and I quote, In no other establishment in the world can one get such a full idea of the infinite uses which glass is made to serve as in these immense works. From fiesta ware to slump glass tableware, cathode ray tubes and optics to cylinder-blown stained glass, flat glass, figured window glass, kitchenware, lampshades and, of course, lighthouse lenses, their output was immense. But the recessions of the late 20th century and a fall in demand took their toll, and whilst part of the company survived elsewhere, the huge 30-acre site in Smelik shut its doors for the last time when the tube plant closed in 1981. And joining me today is the man who had the sad task of locking the gates on the flat glass division for the final time when it closed in 1976. A former apprentice draftsman at Chats Brothers who ended his career as chief engineer, Ray Drury. So, what attracted you to work there? When I was educated at Albury Tech, there were two firms to go to when you left because they qualified you as an engineer for the Merchant Navy. It was Avery's and Tangies. I went to Tangies and after six weeks I'd had enough with no promises, no future promises. I didn't know where I was going. And an advert came up in the paper for an apprentice draftsman at Chance Brothers and I jumped at it. I started in 1949, September. Can you uh, describe to me uh, what Chance's was like, the scene that greeted you when you started in 1949? I used to come to work on my bike into the lighthouse gate. Now you're forbidden to ride your bike in the works. So then you used to walk down the drive. I'm just picturing myself now. You went round the corner out of sight of the gatehouse and you got on one pedal and started to scoot along the road. Sometimes you were caught by security and told off, but uh, not very often. We come along the drive through the lighthouse works. Right in front of you is a big metal container. And believe it or not, that metal container was part of the mixing where they mixed the frit. And in that container was arsenic. Frit, Ray, can you describe what that is, please? Frit is more or less a powder which contains all the chemicals required to make the glass. You've got cullet, which is the broken glass, Frit is the powders of soda ash, lime, sand and anything else that's required to refine the glass. But the arsenic 
was there in an open tin box. You could lift the lid and poison yourself at any time. But anyway, scooting on the bike down the drive, we go through the lighthouse works where the massive machinery department is there with some very big machines. And also was the lighthouse with its lens and that used to be focused by a light a hundred yards away bringing the light from that position into the centre of the dome that contained all the lenses. We then carry on past the lighthouse tool room, past the stores and through the Austin light department which made GPO equipment and then we come to the first of the maintenance departments where they used to do the heavy steel work, sheet works. We turn the corner again and we go past a processing plant which was acid burning half pint on your glass and things like that for marking the various products that we made. Then you go under what was known as the Telfer where the railway lines and the canal come into the works and there was an overhead crane on a rail which had a grab which was capable of lifting four tonnes of glass for then moving it to the furnaces by various methods, mainly trucks. We go under the bridge then which divides the two works. We're now going into the flat glass works and you go on to the main production houses of Fiesta Ware and the big flat glass producing houses. So having illegally scooted your bike all this way, how many hundreds of yards have you come from that front door? I've probably done about 800 yards. That is quite some factory, isn't it? It is. You tart off in Albury, you go through Smethwick and you wind up in West Bromwich. And how did conditions change during your time at the factory? Well, first of all, we had an engineering factory as well as a glass factory. We built the lighthouses in total, not just the lenses, all the beautiful brass mechanisms, etc., that turn the light. And we had a sumo factory which made submersible pumps, one of the first submersible pumps ever to be made. When Pilkingtons took over, they eventually sold all the engineering side off. That was a vast change. And when I went there first, we had a tremendous range of products. If it was glass, we made it. Window glass was the main product and figured window glass, but we made everything from domestic wear, chemical wear and tubing for fluorescent lights. Did those products change over time or was there a, a constancy in the range over your period? Yes, gradually we dropped them. Remember, we're talking just after the Second World War, really, and people were still striving to get things around them. And I think once they got, say, a domestic bowl and its accessories, they didn't want another one. And I think the market dropped off, and gradually we dropped all these smaller products off and finished up, really, with tubing and flat glass being almost the entirety of production. Can you describe a typical working day in such a huge complex? The friendships and interactions you had, the relationships you made, how long did you work? 
I started in the drawing office, which gave me quarter to nine till five and twenty past five. But then when I went in the shops to learn or get some knowledge of all the trades, it was half past seven till 18 minutes past five. Now, why we get these odd minutes, I don't know. But they did make up the 40 hours. And it was quite a thing, really, to get there early. Because I travelled around the site, and then when I became a draftsman, I went all around the site again, having to design and measure things up and whatnot. I made friends with almost the entire works, as you might say. But when I was an apprentice, we had an apprentice club, and that was across the road, across Spawn Lane, to the other side, the old malt house. And we used to meet there, and it was open almost every night of the week, and the apprentices all became one big clique, and we used to go cycling together. A lot of tennis was played in the summer, so we did make quite good friendships and quite lasting friendships. I played cricket for Chance Brothers, and um, you could have two nights a week in the nets and then one game on a weekend, so that's quite a lot of meeting of fellow employees. You'd meet managers and people like that who also played cricket and that, and it was nice to get to know them, especially as a young man, because they were in my office, as you thought, and you didn't realise they were human until you did something like that. What are your memories of chances as a family, as employers? Who was in overall charge at the time? We, in my time, I didn't ever meet one of the chances. You understand that a chance family man is like God to a young employee and therefore you never got to meet people of that high status. So they could have been there, but I was never in a position to meet them. CU Chance was the one that was on the panel that interviewed the apprentices on my early days there, but CU disappeared from the board and that was that. I did, however, meet the managing director. Every six months we used to have an apprentice meeting and you went before about five people, one of them being the big cheese, the managing director or whatever he likes to be called these days. Do you remember who he was? It varied. There was a fellow named Mr Raymond and the apprentices called him Big Nose <laughs> for obvious reasons. I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when he was in the chair, he was pretty hard on you. I lost £10 off my bonus for losing nine minutes in six months on clocking in. But it was all part of the training of a youngster, I suppose. It was a good thing, but they used to go through the apprentice with your foreman and your manager and, as I say, the managing director. And all these people were sitting behind a table and you used to be trembling outside the door waiting to be called. And on the side was a statue of Robert Lucas Chance, a bust of him. And you used to look at this thing and, and wonder what was going to happen next. But it was a good upbringing and he kept the discipline and you knew he, he was like a, a father figure to you. The company was paternal. Paternal management is sometimes regarded as bad 
at Chance Brothers, it was good paternal management. They required of you a certain discipline, but at the same time, if you had a problem, they support you up to the hilt. And you felt you were working for almost a family as much as a company. Going slightly at a tangent on that point, Ray, do you feel in your experience that modern industry has lost something with those practices that no longer exist? Modern industry is all focused on finance. And I think they've lost the idea of being a sort of family of employers and employees. I think all that has gone. It's just how much you're worth to the company to make money. You seem to have been through the best of times and worst of times, if I can paraphrase Charles Dickens, uh, in your time at Chances, uh, Ray. You were there pretty much at the pinnacle of its powers and you were the last person to shut the gates 30-odd years later. What do you think caused the decline in the factory's fortunes? It seems strange when you look around there seems to be more glass in buildings than ever. Windows are the cheapest way of filling in a wall, so glass became very popular. But I think other countries started to make more glass, and as it went on, we were losing orders steadily. The capacity of the company was getting greater, but the demand was getting less. So you can see with that you've got a problem on your hands. We at one stage said we'd try and increase our speed by 10% per year. What you do is you double your production in eight years if you're doing that. So we actually succeeded in doing it. And we were rolling faster in 1976 than Pilkingtons are today on the same process. We also rolled wider. We were doing extremely well, but Pilkingtons held the book for sales. So the other thing is Pilkingtons at St Helens, they had the main office and all the top staffers, I might call them, and the board. So if you've not got enough sales orders, you're going to shut down the outlying factory rather than shut one of your factories in your main centre of operations. So that's why when orders got a bit slack, Chance Brothers was closed. Your career path uh, was a varied one by the time the factory shut and you locked the gates. You started off as an apprentice draftsman and ended up, I believe, chief engineer. What happened in between and what qualifications did Chances provide for you along the way? Well, of course, as an apprentice draftsman, I had to go to college once a week and one night a week to get higher national. This is all financed by chances? All financed by chances, yes, so it didn't cost me a penny. I eventually got my higher national. What advantage that gave you was instead of getting the full draftsman's rate at 25, you got it at 24 if you got a higher national. So I gained a bit of money there. But I pestered the chief engineer to get onto an engineer and I was made assistant divisional engineer eventually. I came off the drawing board. Then Pilkington's divided the works into two totally separate works under separate boards. I was on the flat glass side. I became divisional engineer when the divisional engineer left. And then chief engineer as we formed a completely different maintenance setup. 
then I was very happy. I had a very, very good supporting team. I couldn't have wished for better. I had 60 maintenance fitters work for me, though, which was a heck of a sized maintenance crew because we not only maintained what we got, we built stuff for all over the world. Uh, you were the man who had the sad task of uh, locking the gates on the flat glass division in 1976 and uh, the tube section limped on till 1981. How did you feel about that, Ray? What was your emotions when you turned that key and walked away? The works had been running down, not replacing people and things like that. And they wanted me to go to St Helens to sheet works. I'd got nothing against St Helens or sheet works, but it wasn't the same as chances. And also I didn't want to leave the area I'd got ties in this area. But Pilkington's tried very hard for six months to force me to go. And they did that by keeping me at the works with absolutely no production, no nothing, just my office. And I used to go there in the morning and come home at night. But I didn't want to go to St Helens. And in the end, they gave up and let me go. So uh, it was difficult and... I cried many times at work when I used to walk round and see the old plant and everything and everything dead and the furnace is cold. And it did upset me because I'd spent my life there. I'd enjoyed establishing the work that I had done and development of the glass production process and helping companies all over the world. All this was behind me. It had come to an end and this was a sad ending and I left the works in tears, locking the gate behind me and thinking that's the end of an era. And sure enough, as far as I was concerned, it was. Are you still involved with the company in its history in any way? Do you, do you yes. continue any links? Pilkington have a welfare fund and they keep in touch with a quarterly magazine and different things about the overall company. We have reunions. They run a reunion dinner for us every year, so I meet some of my old friends from Chances at that. They also have what you might call a holiday home at St Helens, where the coach picks you up, takes you there, takes you out for the day to the seaside and all sorts of places. So I am still involved with the Pilkington Group. Uh, you are, or were, until recent times, a, a keen narrowboater. And uh, I must declare a vested interest here because uh, we moored alongside each other for the thick end of 20 years. <laughs> so I know of your passion for it. And you must have passed along the uh, canal that runs right outside Chances many times. How do you feel when you see your old firm in its current state now? It upsets me. It brings tears to my eyes. When we go along the canal, alongside Chances, there's one hell of a big wall. I don't know whether it's 40 foot or 50 foot. And I look at that wall and I examine it for faults as we're going along in the Natterboat. I look for cracks and I don't know why, because I'm no longer responsible for well, it. Old habits die hard, but uh, <laughs> is it looking OK? It wasn't looking bad until <laughs> 2012 or something like that when a piece of the top end fell off as a result of a beam falling on the inside. 
luckily everything fell the opposite way to the canal. What would you like to see happen to the site? I think it's an industrial site and it should stay that way. I don't think the area's any good for residential. I'd like to see it industrial. I'd like to see it employing people again. I'm going to put you on the spot with one final question, Ray. Will you describe your life at chances for me in one sentence? It was generally a happy time. It was a family group type of existence and I never begrudged working Sundays, Saturdays, days and nights, even Christmas Day. Therefore, I must have been happy. And on that note, uh, my sincere thanks to you, Ray Drury, for your reminiscences. And as always, if you wish to obtain both current and back issues of our History West Midlands magazine, watch the accompanying presentations, subscribe to our audio resources, or simply contact us. Then you can do it all by going through the History West Midlands website and following the relevant links. Join me next time for more fascinating insights into the Black Country. Until then, enjoy your history and thank you for listening. <laughs>